Welcome to another Military History Verbalized podcast and today we have Justin again here who has a Master in Military History. Hello Justin. Hello everybody. And today we talk about first some criticism that was thrown at me about stating in my Bismarck versus Swordfish video that the Bismarck Edits Commission was one of the most advanced warships on the planet. And I should stress here, I intentionally stated commission because that was in 1940 and relatively few battleships were back then rather new mostly of them were already quite old so if somebody draws up the Yamato commission in late 1941 or the Iowa even far later they don't count and since Justin is well versed in naval affairs what is your take on this well it's always something that i've found I mean, tech debates in general in kind of the enthusiast community, I usually don't touch with a 35-foot pole. But um, any discussion around battleships, I find in particular, gets toxic extremely fast. So even if you say something that is like really kind of benign and honestly factually accurate, it's like, you know, the Bismarck class was one of the most modern battleships in service at the time, like objectively. There's, it's not even a debate. And the, the whole thing behind that, that like where it becomes a debate is you have like people, because you do have, there's like this subset of Verabos as they're often referred to, that, you know, that everything the Germans ever built ever was the most perfect, amazing thing. And so, so you have that side screaming. And then you have another side where they won't, they don't seem to accept anything less than Bismarck was terrible. Like they, like they don't, and they, they just completely ignore any kind of factual evidence or anything like that. They just want it to be terrible. And then you have, so you have these two impossible positions and then they're just entrenched and just screaming at each other <laughs> in forums and YouTube comments and in videos and video responses. and. I, it's just something that is exhausting. And I think it's like that kind of attitude is probably one of the reasons why I know a lot of uh, professional historians who they almost look down on a lot of the enthusiast community, unfortunately, because the enthusiast community can do actually a lot of, um, can actually contribute a lot. I'm a firm supporter of that. But a lot of those kinds of really toxic debates and things like that really paint enthusiast community with a, a very um, bad brush. Yeah, it was quite interesting because one guy, I mean, he was stumbled into oblivion, actually called me a wearable or why is this not wearable because I stated this. And then the others chimed in and basically one said, he said advanced, not effective. And, and what I found very interesting, you mentioned that the armor scheme of the Bismarck was quite different from, from other battleships at the time. I think the others were mainly all or nothing. And the Bismarck had a more balanced armor scheme. Can you can you explain this? Because, I mean, as far as I know, the all or nothing scheme made more sense in, in certain aspects, but it always comes down to doctrine and what is the overall mission of the ship and everything else, which usually is not um, properly reflected in in those what I call dick measuring contests when it goes for armor size and other elements. Could you explain that a bit? Yeah, so the, the Bismarck had a distributed armor scheme, which at some point down the line, 
uh, kind of amateur circles, of which really I'm a part, to be honest. I mean, unless you're trained as a naval architect and also are extremely well read on this kind of stuff, like you're an amateur. But the the distributed armor scheme on the Bismarck class, it was something. It had a very long lineage. That's you know when you go all the way back to, for example, in like early on in the First World War, every every battleship had a distributed armor scheme. It means that um, all parts of the ship were armored from the bow all the way back through to the stern. So, and, and it wouldn't be a uniform thickness. It would be, you know, thinner toward the bow or whatever, and then it would thicken to its maximum thickness over the citadel area, and then they would thin back out, uh, etc. Like, you know, you get the point. And then that's often compared to the all-or-nothing uh, armor scheme, which I believe was invented by the Americans. I, I'm pretty sure on the uh, New Mexico class, if I remember correctly, uh, where they just didn't bother armoring the bow and other unimportant areas of the ship. They would just focus all of the armor protection over the critical components, the citadel area. And then there'd be some armor over the uh, machine, um, um, steering, steering gears and things like that. But for the most part, the protection was centered on on the citadel only and there's this concept where all or nothing is just better which isn't really true the americans did it for certain reasons just like the um i had someone who was far better read on on the development of the bismarck class and everything than i was explain it to me it's like he wasn't like the germans were actually aware of the all or nothing armor scheme they weren't stupid they deliberately chose a distributed armor scheme that ha was older for reasons, and they because they assessed that the Bismarck class they were it was built to be uh, protected for the conditions that they had uh, experienced in at Jutland. So you get closer ranges, like poor visibility. So where when you're getting close enough that even smaller caliber shells start to become an issue, so that they should at least have they at least the logic goes, they should have some armor protection over pretty much the, all over the ship to help against not just large caliber shells at long range, but also smaller stuff. Now, the all or nothing scheme, uh, one of its main advantages is that you save a lot of weight because you're not armoring unimportant parts of the ship. So you can take all of the tonnage that you want to put into armor and you can focus it on the citadel. Uh, the most important parts. This is particularly good for longer range engagements where you're only really concerned about protecting your crucial spaces from larger caliber shells. And you're not too concerned about the smaller caliber stuff because you're under the an under assumption you're not going to be getting super close generally. But of course, that means that there's a large part of your ship that is mostly unprotected. Now this is technic, you know, quote unquote non-critical but you still don't want your entire ship getting blown away outside of the citadel. I mean, technically, they're, they're calculated where as long as the citadel is in breach, there's enough buoyancy that the ships will stay afloat. But they're still not going to be going as fast or maneuvering as well or anything like And you can cause a lot of problems to areas of the ship. Um, you can cause a lot of problems if you're damaging stuff outside of the citadel. It's just the ship won't necessarily be totally combat ineffective and it won't sink, theoretically. Uh, with the Bismarcks, they decided to go down another path. And now the weight, obvi that obviously means that the Bismarcks, they put a lot more weight tonnage into their armor, into the armor. So you could say, you know, they could have, you know, 
adopted an all or nothing scheme and you know saved weight maybe increased the speed a bit or maybe thickened the citadel protection although you have to remember that bismarck was a big girl it's like one around 40 41,000 45,000 tons can't remember i think it's for 41ish uh tons standard but so, so it's already a huge battleship meaning that it's not like the citadel was poorly protected you know, if it had been a treaty battleship limited to 35,000 tons standard, at that point, like, yeah, it probably would have had thinner armor protection than, for example, a, a North Carolina or something like that. But in the end, because it was a bigger ship, they could put more weight into armor. And therefore, you had armor all over the place and then also a pretty well-protected citadel. Like, it was not poorly protected by any stretch of the imagination. Although I've heard... um can't remember what the thickness was exactly, but I heard the deck armor was relatively thin. Again, going back to the assumption that they'd be fighting at closer ranges, so that just wasn't something that they had designed for. Yeah, I mean, but it's not it's not an easy dichotomy of good versus bad. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's quite interesting because two experiences come to mind. First of the Bismarck uh, took quite a pounding until it was finally sunk or it blew itself up. I think there's still a discussion about this. So if it, the armor was so bad, um, why wasn't it sunk earlier? And the other point is, of course, if you look at Operation Weserübung, at which point Bismarck wasn't operational, or at least it was not deployed, there is the point, I think it was the HMS Glowworm against Heavy Cruiser Admiral Hipper, and, and they met each other in pretty close range when they basically both resorted to ramming. So because due to the visibility limitations and everything, and and the Bismarck was more North Sea or Baltic Sea, that's in English, I think, and everything. So whereas the United States usually focus on the Pacific and North Atlantic, where the visibility is higher. So this actually seems to make a lot of sense if we put it in context. Of course, context is what a lot of people seem to easily ignore. Yeah, context is really important because all these battleships, they were designed to do different things for different nations. You know, would, would the... You, so the certain features of the Bismarck class you wouldn't necessarily want in the PTO, and certain battleships were built under. Um, oh, sorry, oh, it's a reminder that we started uh, the podcast. We started. Yeah, we started early. <laughs> um, but th there's certain features of the Bismarck you probably wouldn't want in the PTO. There's certain other battle, like the, for example, a lot of the American battleships they were built to the treaties uh, that Bismarck was not built to. So. You have a 35,000 ton standard um, hard limit on displacement. So you get something like, for example, um, one of my favorite battleship classes, the uh, North Carolinas. You know, superb treaty battleships, but it was, you know, it was built within restrictions. They needed to save weight wherever they could. They still wanted to get a balanced design out of it at the end, but they were limited in their displacement. So they had to make sacrifices. And, you know, it wasn't the world's greatest protected battleship it was sufficiently protected and indeed quite well protected for a treaty battleship but when you're limited by displacement there's only so much you can do and you know there's all of these trade-offs and you know obviously if you're going to have a battleship operating in the pacific you generally want larger operational ranges because the pacific makes the atlantic look like a little lake so you need to be able to actually get places to go fight 
or in the case of the Japanese, you design a, a battleship to operate in the PTO and it still doesn't actually have that much range. But that's also, you know, in their defense, it's because, again, it was designed under a certain set of operational assumptions where they would be operating defensively. So they'd be operating on interior lines near their own bases and things like that, where range wasn't really something that they needed. At least that's what they foresaw, of course, when they ended up in the war. They were forced to try and make use of the Yamato class at ranges that they hadn't really envisioned when it was designed. So they started running into issues there. But there's all of these little trade-offs and, and, and things like that that tend to overlook. And context. Context is, is just so important. But in, instead, you usually get these like circular endless arguments between two sets of poorly read amateurs screaming at each other about something versus something else in like a sterile vacuum where there's yeah. like no other circumstances around it and it's it's just exhausting but <laughs> yeah i mean especially in, in the whole naval affair it's 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 rather interesting like the dunkirk was especially designed with an armor scheme to defeat the 28-centimeter shell of, of the Graf Spee of the Deutschland-class ships. And, and then you have the whole treaty regulations and everything else, and everyone develops a ship to counter another ship. And, and it's like, yeah, if, if you then don't take the context into account, it, it basically makes no sense. Also considering how long it takes to build these ships, because some people think, ah, oh, yeah, let's draw them on a piece of paper and tomorrow we we commission them or something no it takes years and everything yeah yeah so you have ships that were actually designed years apart but then end up actually like in reality they could have ended up fighting each other so you know for example you have the iowa class which was actually a much more modern design than basically everything else in service except for I think Vanguard was similar, but then Vanguard was like this weird compromised, like uh, like Frankenstein's monster. It wasn't really what the Royal Navy wanted, but they kind of got it uh, post-war. But the Iowa class, you know, it's like one of the, it's pretty much the last one that was designed and built. So of course it's going to be probably, you know, the best designed and built because it was the last one to be designed and built. It, so it's, and it's fighting ships that were designed in the you know the mid 1930s or not fighting but um could have theoretically fought ships that were designed in the mid 1930s under a completely different set of assumptions so there, there's all of this um it, it's far more complicated than people often uh, make it out to be yeah. and of course there's always people like talking about flaws too which are which are important because i mean when you got designs as complex as for example a battleship which were really the most complex pieces of machinery that mankind could create at their time of commissioning like they were ludicrously complex and there was a lot of stuff that could go wrong and often there was little things that did go wrong so you'd have a ship and something it never failed something would never work quite like they had envisioned so for example um what i'm abundantly familiar with the yamato class it had a lot of things that did work well and were very well designed, but then it had other weak, uh, other problems that just didn't pan out. For example, uh, particularly the it's, it's been called the Achilles heel of the Yamato class design was the torpedo defense system, which was quite inadequate, particularly considering the size of the ship. I mean, if you're um, to, to put into perspective how poor the torpedo defense system on the Yamato class was, 
the, there were treaty cruisers that were half the displacement that had a better torpedo protection uh, defense system than the Yamato class. So, okay, and, and on top of, well, it, they, it, it's too sh it was too shallow starters, even by the standards of when it was designed. So I'm not even using, um, I'm not even saying like, oh, well, by the standard of 1942. No, I'm saying like, when it was designed in the mid-1930s, it was, the defeat offense was shallow. It was, uh, it didn't have any liquid in the system. Usually you'd want to put like oil, like the Americans did, or uh, water, like the, the uh, Royal Navy did to um, kind of dampen the impact of a, of a torpedo hit. Um, it was totally dry. They just used air on the torpedo defense system. And also, um, there was a problem with the joint between uh, the very lower plate and the main belt. Um, there was a, the joint was like pretty much right at the, right behind the torpedo defense system. And then what, what they found is when it took a torpedo hit, uh, the joint would fail. And you'd get water inside the citadel, which is a big no-no. Uh, you do not want that to happen. Yeah. So, um, now how much did this matter? No, not really. Didn't really matter that much. But uh, other than, um, I can't remember which one it was, either Yamato or Sashi, they, they were um, transiting somewhere and they got hit by a submarine torpedo. And that's when they discovered that there was something very wrong with the torpedo defense system because it started shipping far more water uh, than it really... Uh, was supposed to. So then that's when they recognized, oh, well, something is really wrong here. Now, when they were actually sunk, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. The the amount of force the Americans threw against them, like, like it was going to sink any battleship on Earth. It really didn't matter, um, which is something that, you know, and then you get into these, like, weird debates that come up on forums, like, well, how many torpedoes exactly could have sunk it? Well, it's like, that's a completely pointless argument and debate to get into because what ended up happening is enough torpedoes hit it that they sank. Yeah, That's it's not really a hit point game. Matters. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Um, it wasn't like the Americans back then were like, okay, well, we're going to send torpedo bombers in one at a time, and then we're going to count the number of torpedoes, and we're going to wait in between each one to see how many it takes to sink. No, they came in, they hit it with like over a dozen torpedoes or whatever, and then things sank, <laughs> and they went home. Yeah, that, that's but that's what war is. But yeah, yeah. Well, I I think we nailed this topic. <laughs> <laughs> so so I I think in future I will keep this podcast and if everyone if if some similar discussion comes up I I just post a link. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything more I can add. I mean everything has like little goofy. Um... Uh, quirks like for example the, the the quadruple turrets the french had never-ending problems with them um so that the, was another little issue that um i've heard people talk about the uh the capping plate on the uh, iowa class it didn't actually work as intended when they did uh, calculations that's more of a hindsight thing though because they didn't have the kind of no uh, metallurgical knowledge that we do now so we could like look back and go actually that wasn't sufficient to do what they wanted it to do necessarily what uh, kind so there's of like plate all... was this again uh it's a decapping plate what, and, what and this is something I'm, I'm trying to remember from months ago if it was specifically only against the the 46 centimeter shells in which case you can't really blame the americans for not for that because when the ship was designed they didn't even know but if it's um if it was something else then it might have actually been an issue 
but again, the Iowa class was stupendously well designed because of course it was the last ones to be designed and built because there was there were designs after the Iowa class, but they weren't built, so who cares? But yeah. um paper ships. I, I should I should discuss, I guess, in very basic terms, and I mean basic. Uh, there's you can't you can't have a design that does everything. Yeah. So for a battleship, you've got you know protection, you've got uh, uh, firepower, and you have mobility or you know speed, which is similar. I think that's a similar triangle in basic terms to uh, how people talk about tanks as well. Yeah, I think in, in ships range is also a bit more important than in tanks, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and I, you could fold all sorts of other complex stuff, like for example, like this is on a very shallow level. So like when you look at, for example, the Iowa class, it's got tons of speed, 33 knots, which is extremely impressive for a battleship. It's got very good firepower, nine 16-inch guns, and they were the, the by, by far the best designed uh, battleship guns. And then you had okay protection. It, it wasn't a stupendously well-protected battleship, and indeed by the standard, considering it was a 45,000-ton battleship, it really wasn't that well protected. Now, that's not that's not saying that it was poorly protected, but it would it could have been much better protected for forty five thousand tons, if the Americans had wanted to give something else up, probably speed. But they wanted the speed, so what you end up with is the Iowa class. Um, you look at like something like Yamato. You've got very good firepower. You have extremely good protection, particularly against shell fire. And then you have okay speed. So you can always see where they're kind of taking stuff out. You know, Bismarck, you've got very good protection, you have very good speed, but you don't really have the best firepower. I mean, for a 41,000-ton battleship, eight 15-inch guns isn't that great. Now, it's, again, it's not bad. Eight 15-inch rifles, particularly the modern ones on Bismarck, are no joke. But you could have had heavier armament if the Germans had really wanted. Although there are other issues like... Um, Apparently, the Germans had problems uh, designing large shell hoists and things like that, which is why they used two-gun turrets, because they actually couldn't design a three-gun turret for large caliber guns that was not going to be obscenely wide. Hmm. But um, they, eventually, they eventually overcame that, though, because uh, I think in the world of warships, uh, when they were digging in the Russian archives, they actually did find a three-gun turret for large, um, large guns that they designed for the Soviets. But... Um, I guess it took them a little while to overcome that hurdle. But, you know, so there's like all, and this is again, like only the most surface level stuff. If you want to like zoom all the way down, you can start looking at like gun characteristics. Do you want lower velocity guns or higher velocity guns? You know, one downside of a higher velocity gun is that they tend to have far, um, far higher barrel wear, meaning you have to change your barrels out more often because of course you're putting the barrels under larger strain because you're firing a high velocity, a very a higher velocity round. So, so there's like all of this stuff, and it's just a series of trade-offs and things. And nations would build what they envisioned they would need. So it's a very complex subject. And again, I don't even consider myself an expert, even though I'm like better, you know, more well-read on the subject than 99% of people out there. Yeah, I guess 99.9%. <laughs> Maybe not 0.9, because I think there's a lot of, like, you know, people that are... There's people out there that are more technical than me, uh, than me when it comes to naval stuff. But Yeah, and I mean, naval engineers, obviously, but, but <laughs> so, so far I don't, I don't me have met any naval engineer. We have, we have a brother of a naval engineer, as far as I know, in the Discord, 
which will oh, be really? invited to a future um, podcast very likely after I had some time to read um, the German war construction ship uh, book from 1943. Oh, okay. And and yeah, so so the, the you, is, you, you should not forget engineers are rather rare. <laughs> they are really rare. <laughs> and I know that there's there's one on uh, that pops up occasionally on like the War Thunder and World Warships forums, although he doesn't post as much as he used to, probably because of just exasperation, because on the internet, yeah. everyone thinks their expertise is equivalent to a guy that trained at the U.S. Navy War College and is an expert on like war, uh, Japanese warship design from the period they're talking about, but the other guy read a book one time, so of course their opinion is equivalent. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a general thing when it when it comes to to warship design. Like back then, you know, they had a bunch of of engineers for for every system, basically. Yeah, and then somebody mm-hmm. comes up in the internet nowadays and says, "Yeah, that, that was bad. It was stupid." Oh, really? Really? The leading edge, the leading edge engineers back then designed these guns and everything else. But you, with with probably a bachelor in I don't know in history or something. Show up and, and tell them it's more stupid. Mm, very yeah. interesting. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of my rambling. So thank you very much, Justin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, if you like the podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon. There's a link in the description. And thank you for listening. And see you next time. Bye.